Hello, Mars Hill. I'll give you a few seconds to get back in your seats here. This is a lively bunch today. Hmm. Um, today, I'm reading Psalm 8. And if you're using a blue Bible, it's found on page 502. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, Troy. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, everybody, good morning. My name is Troy. Happy to be one of our pastors here. Hope you're doing well. Um, so I built a swing set recently. Uh, to, to be fair, um, I had an awful lot of help. Um, my dad, Dan Hatfield, uh, whose birthday was just on Friday, happy birthday, Dad, um, came uh, to help along with our associate pastor, Tim Nelson. These two guys were massively helpful as I tried to take about 25,000 little pieces of cedar wood and move from those little pieces into some kind of functional swing set for our daughter Maggie's second birthday. And I got to tell you, I was feeling really good about myself. Because I don't have any skills. No, I have no skills. Um, there's nothing about this project that was intuitive for me. I was swimming against the current 100% of the time. This is one of these Ikea-like projects which has about three million bolts and washers and screws and one tiny little wrench for the whole thing and pictures. Um, I, honestly, I, it, it's miraculous. I had to undo about 12 steps. I would get to, and then have to backtrack and undo it. Even so, at the end of the day, our little girl sat in a bucket swing and the swing set didn't fall down. I was feeling so good. And then I looked at the internet. Do you, do you ever have the experience like something is going really good and then you look at the internet? No? Okay. Uh, why does this happen? What? First off, I, I revisited this 
Instagram account that I have followed for a couple of years. It's a guy who calls himself Psychelangelo. And he drives his bicycle, rides his bicycle, I suppose, technically. He rides his bicycle across portions of Canada. And he uses the GPS to track his route. And he rides in places and draws pictures. The routes that he takes make pictures. This man actually rides his bicycle to make shapes. And then I saw an article about a young guy named Angel Alvarado. He's 19, he's from Colombia, and just recently he set a new world record. He set a new world record for solving three Rubik's Cubes. He solved them in four minutes and 31 seconds while he juggled the Rubik's Cubes. Get this. This is a quote from this young man. He says, quote, it takes a lot of concentration. (laughs) It, It takes a lot of concentration to learn how to keep track of these three cubes while they're flying in the air. Who knew, right? So there's this one guy who draws pictures with his bicycle And then this other guy who solves Rubik's Cubes and juggles them. While it took me one week to create a swing set that was estimated to take about eight hours. (laughs) Friends, I went from feeling really good about myself to having a genuine full-blown existential crisis. What am I good for? Who am I? What do I do here? Um, I'm going to guess, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but I'm going to guess that some of you know what I'm talking about. That some of you have had this experience where, okay, maybe you have peeked at another Pinterest board. Or you've gone to see how many followers somebody has on their social media account. Or maybe you were tracking how many books somebody has on their Goodreads account. Or maybe you've seen how many times a particular post has been retweeted and something happened inside of you and you noticed that creeping up while you're doing that is this kind of nagging sense of self-doubt. Or, or, or maybe, maybe you had a, you've had a conversation with somebody that you really love, and that conversation got unexpectedly really heated. Or, or maybe, uh, maybe you missed an important deadline, and you knew that people were counting on you. Or, or maybe, maybe you gave in to one of those lingering, nagging habits that you have, and you know it's not good for you, but... You're just tired, and you didn't feel like resisting. You didn't feel like exercising self-control. Or, or maybe, here's another one. Like me, this past week, you had a child with an epic tantrum meltdown. And no matter what you did, nothing could calm her. 
And on the other side of this experience, you felt a kind of questioning of yourself. A kind of, if you were to interrogate it long enough, a sort of self-worth question. And then, frankly, some of us, we don't need any external stimulus to provoke these questions. Some of us are always asking the question. Um, Carl Sagan, the American astronomer, he once wrote, as long as there have been humans, we have searched for our place in the cosmos. Where are we? Who are we? For some of us, these kinds of questions are always lurking under the surface. The psalm that we're concentrating on today, Psalm 8, Psalm 8 has an example of one of these kinds of existential questions. Right in the middle of these nine verses, David asks one of those questions. What are mere mortals? What are mere mortals that God would be mindful of them? And what are human beings that God would care for them? And even though the pathway that leads David to ask this question, it's different than what I was just describing. All the same, this psalm affirms that these kinds of questions, that they're not just okay. They are. But the psalm doesn't say it's not just that the questions are okay, but that these questions, they can actually be met with actual answers. That these kinds of questions, they can be more than just thought experiments. These kinds of questions can be more than just rhetorical. So for those with ears to hear and those with eyes to see, I think Psalm 8 attempts to address our very real questions about identity. Now, before I get deeper into those questions, I want to highlight for you very quickly some of the uniqueness of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is really unique from all the other psalms um, in the book of Psalms. This is the very first, you can keep this by the way, the next time you're at a trivia party. I'm sure you go to a lot of Bible-themed trivia parties, right? Keep this in your hip pocket for the next time the psalms come up at trivia. I'm obviously kidding. Uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is the first psalm of praise in the Psalms. And not only that, but Psalm 8 is the only psalm, and in fact, it's the only hymn in all of the Old Testament that is composed entirely addressed to God. It's the only spot in the Old Testament that's entirely addressed to God, a hymn or a psalm. All the other psalms, the writer or the speaker or the singer um, is addressing sometimes himself, sometimes dress, addressing the gathered community, sometimes even addressing one's enemies. But in Psalm 8, there's only one audience. God is the only person being addressed in this psalm. And that's important because it helps to clarify the tone of the questions that David asks right in the middle. It's clarifying because these wonderings about why humans matter, they're not simply thrown out as speculative. 
These are not examples of like intellectual gymnastics. The tone of Psalm 8 is intimacy. The tone of Psalm 8 is honesty. David is directly addressing God the entire time, even those questions. Uh, uh, Two weeks ago, Tim Nelson's sermon uh, would be a really helpful, I think, companion to what I'm going to say here. If you haven't listened to that, go back and listen. Be blessed by Tim's insights and words from a couple of weeks ago. But in that particular sermon two weeks ago, Tom, Tom, I've actually met him, Tim. Tim drew our attention to Psalm 139. And he reminds us in that psalm, That God knows us and loves us fully. That even before we speak a word, God knows that word completely. And that God desires to search and to know all who are willing to cooperate and to be open to that kind of intimacy. So I believe... I believe that God takes seriously these kinds of questions. That God's intention is to not leave us wondering. God's intention is to not leave us doubting. God's intention is to not leave us full of anxiety in the face of these questions. That God, in this psalm, offers up four responses to our questions. Why do I matter? Who am I? And why do I matter? So the first response is this. You and I were made by the creator of everything. This psalm, it has a lot of echoes of the creation story that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, at verse 3, uh, David recounts a bit of the story when he says, I consider the works of your hands. I consider the heavens, um, the works of God's fingers. And I consider the moon and the stars that have been set in place. So David here, he confirms that God is the creator. God is all-powerful. And uh, needs only fingers to create the heavens. And that God sets the moons and the stars in place. And it reminds us that God is intentional with creation. There are no accidents. There are no flukes. It's all been made on purpose by the all-powerful creator. And then David answers his own questions. What is, what is man? What are humans? What are mere mortals? By saying this, you, God, have made them. That the all-powerful creator who is capable of making and bringing into being anything has chosen to make humans. That God has chosen to make you. I think we can become desensitized to this. But I think it's important that we remember God has chosen to make 
you. The all-powerful creator didn't stop at vastness. That the all-powerful creator went to particularity. Chose to make you. And just like the moon and the stars that God set into their places, that humans have been created with the same kind of intentionality, that you are not an accident. You have been placed on purpose. So I think the first fundamental response to our questions around identity, they begin here. They begin by remembering that we have been made by the creator of everything. And then the second response is that you have been made with glory and honor. Verse 5 says this, um, You, God, have made them, the humans, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned them, the humans, with glory and honor. So this verse, along with being an echo of the creation story, it now turns and it gives us some new language. It gives us royal language. It gives us royal imagery. Humanity's rank is established here. And it says uh, the, the humans are ranked a little lower. Uh, I think in the NIV it says ranked a little lower than the heavenly beings. In the original language, it's much more accurate to say the humans are ranked a little lower than God. So it's, con it's confirmation that we get here that humans, uniquely among all of creation, have been made in God's image. Humans uniquely have been made with God's image. And then this honor and glory language is the kind of stuff that would be typically associated with rulers, with kingship. So there's the royalty sort of angle. So at the very beginning of the psalm, David says that God's glory is above the heavens. But then when it comes to humans, in, in a real sense, that glory is relocated. And the humans here are crowned. Do you see more of the royal language? The humans are crowned with honor and glory. So that glory is not simply residing in some far off place, but now it has a very physical home. Uh, this image of God into which we have all been made, it is what distinguishes us. But it also, this honor and glory, it also emphasizes the kind of intentionality with which God has made us. We have not been simply cranked out on some kind of cosmic assembly line. Rather, God has made us wonderfully. As Tim reminded us a couple weeks ago, uh, God has made us weirdly, some more than others. But God has made us uniquely. God has made us weirdly to individually and to distinctively bear God's image in the world with glory and with honor. Now, I'm guessing that some of us struggle with this reality, that some of us are gonna struggle with this 
as a truth because we certainly don't feel like we've been made with any particular kind of glory or honor. We certainly don't feel very unique. Some of us feel forgettable. And I'll admit that this sort of a truth is a mystery. It is a hard thing to grasp. I take a lot of comfort um, from the words of an early Christian theologian, a guy called Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory the theologian would be a better way to talk. But he was alive in the 300s. And he wrote this, talking about this mystery. He says, I am small and great. I'm lowly and exalted. I'm mortal and immortal. I'm earthly and heavenly. I am connected with the earth below and likewise with God. I am connected with the flesh and likewise with the spirit. What Gregory's highlighting here is that the mystery of our being made is that we are both. We are both small and great. We are both very, very human. And we have also been crowned with honor and glory. So, so be encouraged today. Even in your most everyday humanity, you have been made just a little lower than the one who made you. You have been crowned. You have been made with glory and honor. Third response. You have been made for a purpose. The psalm continues in verse 6, describing humans as rulers over the world, over the work of God's hands. So God has made humans in God's image and thereby have given, invited humans to participate in God's love and care for the rest of creation. Humans have been given meaningful work to do. The phrase uh, it's used there, uh, it says, you, God, have put everything under their feet. It's another a phrase, it's more language that's associated with rulers, with kings. Um, it's a reminder that we are to rule as God would rule. The purpose, this particular purpose, it's what classically has been called dominion. If you've heard this before, um, humans have been given dominion over creation. Um, that humans have been appointed by God as co-kings and co-queens to rule over creation, to subdue it and to order it. But over the centuries, this particular purpose has gone really sideways. And our understanding of, our, of this purpose has gone sideways with it. So let's not forget. Let's not forget that the creation remains God's. The psalm establishes very early here that the creation is the work of God's hands. Or as it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so what that stresses for us is that this dominion, this rule, this purpose that we have been given, it cannot mean that the authority is given to humans to do whatever they want. Because it doesn't belong to us. We are given a purpose to rule over what belongs to God. Another psalm, Psalm 72, it didn't get any votes, 
um, in our early uh, uh, requests for people. I'm going to talk about it a little bit anyway. In Psalm 72, it gives us an interesting glimpse of what this purpose, what this rule would look like. What's an ideal manifestation of this rule in Psalm 72? Um, rather than a kind of selfish exploitation of everything around you, Psalm 72 says that this God-given rule would deliver and care for all who are needy and afflicted. Is that this rule would pity all who are weak. That this rule would rescue all who are under oppression and who are suffering from violence. And that this rule would ensure that grain abounds and that the crops would flourish throughout the land. Uh, the, the Pentecostal theologian Chris Green, he describes our purpose this way, that we're created to bring the beauty of God's holiness to bear on everyone and on everything. And I find this helpful language because if I'm not careful, I can excuse myself from this call, this thing that I read here in Psalm 8 and throughout the Old Testament, uh, because I'm not a farmer. I don't work with plants. I have zero passion for animals. So I, can, I, I feel like I excuse myself from this call. But what Chris Green is doing here, helpfully, is to shine in the light that the call, friends, whatever it is that you and I are doing, whether it earns you a paycheck or not, it is intended to participate in God's love and care for everything that lives on the earth. That's the purpose. You and I were not simply made, we were made for a very particular purpose, to faithfully bear the image of God in the ways that we care for and the ways that we order the works of God's hands. And then the final uh, response that we get out of Psalm 8 is that you were made to join the song. Psalm 8 begins and ends with all the same words. We sang them at the beginning of the service. Oh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I mentioned before how this is a really personal psalm, how this psalm um, is David's psalm directed entirely to God. But what we get here in these words, we get this beautiful communal moment because we get this word, our our Lord. And with that one little word, David draws us in and graciously includes us in this song. Because like David, every single one of us has been made by the all-powerful creator. That every single one of us has been made with glory and honor. That every single one of us has been made for a purpose. And therefore, every single one of us is invited to join David in all of the created order in declaring the greatness of God's essence and God's character. Every one of us invited to join our Lord. So be encouraged. Um, you are not left to your own devices to try to figure out who you are. You're not left on your own to wrestle with these questions of identity and purpose and meaning. Rather, you have been given a place among God's creation.
within God's redemptive work, along with God's people. That's really good news. So join the song and declare with your life and with your voice God's majesty in all of the earth. Now, I had a very different sermon a couple of days ago. When our teaching team got together on Tuesday, I put something entirely, a totally different direction in front of them when we met. Um, and, then, and then I got a text from somebody on Thursday. And that text was so meaningful and so grounding and so centering. Um, and it, it reminded me of a particular quote a quote that I had written in the, uh, the opening cover of one of my journals. And I had this sense that maybe, just maybe, we needed to turn the sermon in a different direction and talk about something a little different. And so that's, that's what I just did, by the way. It was that. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to close, I want to share with you that particular quote, not the text, the quote that it reminded me of. And I hope it serves as a bit of an encouragement, particularly for those of you who are currently or who are regularly sitting with questions about your identity. Those of you who are constantly wondering about your value or your self-worth. For all of you who repeatedly wonder or who are regularly voicing a prayer kind of like the one that we find in Psalm 8, who, who am I? Who am I that God would be mindful of me? Or who am I that God would care for me? Any of you who are regularly asking or praying that kind of prayer, remember that you have been wonderfully and weirdly made. Remember that you have been crowned with glory and honor. Remember that you have been invited to participate in God's work of putting the whole world back together. And remember that you have been welcomed into God's people to join the song. Henry Nouwen once wrote these words. We have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. the beloved. It constitutes the core truth of our existence. What are humans that God would be mindful of them? And what are mere mortals that God would care for them? Being the beloved it constitutes the core truth 
of our existence. Build. 